Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Scheinwald, founder of Mission Driven Group. I do my best to encourage entrepreneurship, which is why I connected so well with VFA, an organization whose mission it is to transform America's cities through entrepreneurship. You can find out more about VFA via its rather intuitive URL, VentureForAmerica.org, and you can find me via MissionDrivenGroup.com or my LinkedIn page. As I've noted in the past, I am lucky to have a unique name. I'm the only Jeremy Scheinwald in all of LinkedIn-dom. It's our pleasure today to have Alexandra Wilkes-Wilson on the podcast. Alexandra is the president and CEO of Glam Squad, the premier on-demand beauty services app delivering high-quality and affordable at-home beauty services by experienced stylists. Prior to joining Glam Squad, Alexander was a co-founder and strategic advisor to the Guild Group, a pioneer and leader among flash sales businesses. She helped lead the Guild Group to a point where it had nine million, yes, nine million members and over a thousand employees. Alexander's a veteran of the retail world, having held positions at Bulgari and Louis Vuitton. She's served on the board of directors of too many organizations to name, but notably the nonprofit Dress for Success Worldwide and the very much for-profit Perry Ellis International. She also is a member of VFA's entrepreneurial board. We hope that you'll enjoy our interview with Alexandra Wilkes-Wilson. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So, Alexander, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I want to get to, uh, to Glam Squad and to Guild Group, but first let's start with investment banking. Um, you, you started your career at Merrill Lynch, and entrepreneurship was almost a decade away. Was entrepreneurship in the back of your mind at all at the early stages of your career? At the early stage of my career, I don't even think I knew the word entrepreneurship, but I do believe that I was entrepreneurial by nature. Um, I was the little girl growing up in New York City who loved to have lemonade stands and um, would get together with my friends after school and we'd figure out which of my buddies lived in the highest trafficked uh, street or um, neighborhood. I ha had a friend who, who lived a block from a very busy subway stop, so we, we concluded that was the best address to have our lemonade stand as opposed to my street, which was a little quieter. And, um, you know, I think, I think we can all learn how to be entrepreneurial over time, but some people are just innately creative and are able to either be visionary, which is how I would identify my guilt co-founder, Alexis Maybank. She really sees things that no one sees. Or entrepreneurial in the sense that, that I would consider myself, which is, uh, someone who's just always having ideas, and um, I don't know that I necessarily see things on a blank canvas the way I would say Alexis Maybank does, but 
um, when I see ideas or businesses, I can always think through how to improve them, how to get from A to B or even A to Z. And, and that's also a really critical skill for an entrepreneur. I think there's so many different types of entrepreneurs out there. Um, so whether it's that you're creative and innovative or relentless or a hustler or passionate or visionary or all of the above, um, these are all really important traits. Um, and again, the, the last trait I would add is to be authentic. I think to be a successful entrepreneur, um, authenticity of an individual and of a company um, is really important. So you mentioned Alexis Maybank. Um, you guys met at Harvard Business School. We actually met as undergrads in a Portuguese class. We were uh, both uh, big fans of Brazil and wanted to get our Portuguese language skills um, as strong as possible. And that's where we first met. And then in business school, we were classmates and really pretty inseparable, best of friends uh, from, from day one of business school. I think in all of our podcasts, I think you're the first MBA we've had on the show. I'm curious maybe if, uh, if you could comment on how valuable um, business school was for you in um, you know, developing the skills necessary to, to develop as an entrepreneur. I think getting an MBA is a personal choice, and it's probably not for everyone. Um, and there are a lot of factors that play into whether or not it makes sense to get an MBA, but I really value my experience in business school um, for a number of reasons. One is I knew that I wanted to make a career change coming out of finance, investment banking, and moving into the luxury fashion retail space. And so those two years in business school were a critical time for me to think about that change, to build relationships, to learn, to network, um, and to almost rebrand myself while being a student as someone who really understood uh, the retail and the luxury goods industry. Um, my mother's actually a teacher, and one thing I learned from her and also from my father is that no one can ever take your education away from you. You can lose everything in life. You can lose every dollar in your bank account. You can lose your friends. You can um, have all kinds of hardships happen to you, but you'll always have your education. And that's uh, something that um, I believe is true, I think is important. Business school for, for me, uh, partly because I had Alexis, my best friend, but um, for many reasons was also really, really fun. So I got to learn so much about so many different types of companies and environments. Um, I went to Harvard and that's where they the way that they teach at Harvard Business School is using the case method. So it's a really fun way to learn. Uh, you you read about different companies and situations, and that's how you think through different scenarios and learn uh, different themes and lessons uh, over your two, two years. But I also had the good fortune of meeting people from all over the world. And that network, I think, becomes more and more precious and valuable um, every single day, uh, to be honest. So having that network has certainly certainly helped both Alexis and me in guilt, in just thinking about getting the word out, in hiring. Guilt actually, I'm sorry, Harvard Business School actually wrote a case on guilt. And the Harvard Network, both undergrad and business school, has also been really helpful for us at Glam Squad. So we have 32 full-time employees 
and a bunch of those um, employees came together through Harvard or Harvard Business School relationships and through the power of the network. So you um, you left Harvard Business School and went to work in the luxury industry, um, and then my understanding is Alexis convinced you to come and join the um, join the the team at Gilt as a founding team member. Did you have any doubts about about leaving? Uh, um, you know, Bulgaria, uh, uh, you know, well-known, well-established fashion brand for a, for a, at that point, I don't think the flash sale industry had even been established, so you guys were pioneers in that industry, um, basically leaving to create an industry in some ways. So for some people, taking that first plunge into a startup can be very scary. Um, it can depend on a number of factors, your life stage, your appetite for risk, um, what kind of how deeply and passionately you believe in an idea. For me, in 2007, leaving a more structured corporate environment and, and industry, the luxury goods industry, and moving into something that became guilt um, was, was an amazing decision-making process. I made the decision very quickly, but um, I went to mentors in my life, including my father, um, spent time talking to, to my mother, to my husband, to other people in, in my life and my career who I respect. And at the end of the day, the things that I had to be comfortable with were what's the worst thing that can happen in making this change, you know, going into a startup. So I assessed that the worst thing that could happen is that the startup fails, um, that it you know, we we spend a couple years of our life and the business never takes off. And, and then I have to go back to the industry that I uh, knew. Um, and I was OK with failure and I was OK with trying something and giving it my best and, and then having it not necessarily be a success. So I think when you're evaluating an opportunity, you you really have to think through what's what's the worst case scenario um, I didn't have a lot of financial responsibilities at the time, so I was able to t take a bigger risk at that stage in my career than I might have been willing to take at other stages. And at the end of the day, I wanted to be part of the startup team so badly, and the thought of missing out and not being Alexis's co-founder and not joining Guilt and, and turning it into uh, what we would have been happy with in terms of a success it ultimately grew to be something even much bigger than I had ever dreamed um, that was so appealing and so exciting and I couldn't imagine seeing someone else do that role I would have probably been intensely jealous um, in I'm sort of saying that in a joking way I'm not a jealous person but um, it, you know it it just made sense and the honest truth is the decision was made fast, like within a couple weeks, and I never looked back, and I was naive. I was 30 years old at the time. I really didn't know what it meant. Um, I didn't know what to expect from a startup. I didn't know how intense and how crazy and how emotional and how truly, truly exhausting it was going to be for my seven-year ride. Um, so I'm actually glad I didn't know any of that <laughs> when jumping in. You mentioned you canvassed a lot of different opinions. Did, did anyone say, no, don't do this, it's not a good idea? Or was everyone, all the important, were all the important people in your life pretty much on board? The important people in my life were on board with my making the decision to do something entrepreneurial. 
we definitely, once we were in the business, encountered a lot of naysayers who would tell me, oh, the fashion industry will never do this. You'll never convince brands to sell online at a discount. They already have places where they can liquidate excess inventory. So I definitely heard a lot of naysayers and negative opinions. Um, but I did not, fortunately, did not hear a lot of people whose opinions I really respect tell me, don't do it. And Gilt launched in a rush in order to become first to market. Do you think that contributed to the success of the company? Um, would it have mattered if you were second or third to market? I, th I think it's really important that we launched as quickly as we did. And you know, a lot of entrepreneurs can be perfectionists, and it's hard for that type of profile to launch something that isn't absolutely 300% perfect. And the reality is when you're building a startup, it's very hard to get anything perfect. They're going to be bugs. They're going to be little snafus. They're going to be, um, the, it's just impossible to get everything perfect when you're so resource constrained. Um, so I think it was really critical that we, our first sale that we ever did was November 13th, 2007. We wanted to launch before the holiday shopping season because we felt that if we launched in January, that's typically a bad time in retail anyway. Um, there are a lot of sample sales that occur during that time. So we wanted to kick off before the holidays, before the sample sale rush. And um, we were just determined. Our small little team that was scrappy and dedicated and truly obsessed with the business, um, we made it happen. And, uh, and it, was, it was amazing. I remember that first sale like it was yesterday. What, uh, what, what was the first sale? We sold a brand called Zach Posen, and that was initially a personal favor that we got the meeting. Alexis and I had written a business plan during graduate school for Zach Posen's mom, who was the CEO at the time. And then when we were ready to start building up our pipeline of brands, we went to Susan Posen and said, we're doing this startup. We would be so honored if, if Zach Posen could be involved. and. If there's any way we can, can convince you to be our first brand, that would mean a lot to us. And, you know, they certainly had all kinds of questions and doubts and, um, you know, weren't, weren't uh, it wasn't easy to convince them. But once we did, they, they were pretty amazing. And they said, you know, if we're going to do this, our brand is a pioneering brand. So we don't want to be your second brand. We want to be your first brand. And that was awesome. And you talked about a moment ago some of the resource constraints, a small team. Can you describe the, the founding group and, uh, and what some of those resource constraints were, some of the hurdles that you guys had to overcome? Sure. So we had five co-founders at Gilt, Kevin Ryan, who at the time was our chairman. He, a couple years in, became CEO, but at the time when we launched, he was chairman. And then two fantastic engineers, Mike Brizik and Fong Nguyen. They had worked together before, so they had a great relationship. And then Alexis, uh, and then and then me. So day one, is the five of you working on everything, or did you have any support staff at all? Um, we did. We had some interns. We had I, I had uh, a buyer and then two buyers working under me. Um, we had a director of finance, John Auerbach, who later became our head of our men's business. 
Um, and what, what was really fun to see over the years at Gilt is a lot of our earliest employees really got the chance over the years to spread their wings and move into all kinds of different roles. So from our very first kind of executive assistant, I think she was maybe still in college as she started working for us, so she was very early in her career. She, over time, transitioned to become um, quite important on the creative side of the business and managing the production of all the photo shoots. And as I mentioned, John, he went from being director of finance to then heading the men's business. And there were all kinds of changes. And, and that's exciting. I think when people can try different things, can roll up their sleeves, raise their hand and say, you know, I have an idea. I want to test it out. Or I, I heard you maybe testing out an idea and I want to lead that process. And we just were so fortunate at Gilt and, and certainly today at Glam Squad to have such smart, hungry, can-do type of people, um, which is, you know, at the end of the day, the success of a startup depends so much more on the people than it does on the idea. And Gilt grew so quickly. Um, what did you execute on so well uh, that enabled the company to grow like that? Um, th I mean, the Gilt story was was kind of a phenomenon and it was for many reasons one is we had an amazing team we didn't overlap and butt heads it was very clear from day one what everyone's role was and there was no confusion no conflict on on any kind of functional uh, division of labor and that's really important a lot of startups can get um, can go a little bit sideways when there are conflicts or overlaps or there's a lack of clarity. We never had any of those kind of issues. Um, it was a great idea um, and the timing was good for the idea and then we had I mean it almost feels like we were I don't know like superheroes. We had like more energy than you can possibly imagine. We were just truly obsessed and addicted to making this business the biggest best thing we possibly could and I was um, maniacal about getting the best brands to agree to work with us I went to every trade show I could I went to every store I could I scanned every website I could to figure out what the best brands are out there and then figure out who I knew so that I could get in the door at some of these brands so I did all kinds of cold calling but then I leveraged my existing network um, and I really just pounded the pavement and didn't take no for an answer. And, you know, that I, I never realized how valuable a skill set that is. I don't know what you call it. I mean, I guess it's just being a hustler and not taking no for an answer. But in a startup, that kind of attitude and approach is, is really important, especially if you're um, building a business that relies on on third parties to provide you with your your you know your products um so you know guilt didn't what guilt couldn't control at least in the early days the amount of inventory that was our merchandising team we went out there and just had to do the best we could so you, you started in november of 2007 right yes and uh big recession hits soon after um and that I guess creates a bit of an opportunity because there's a ton of excess inventory on the market that needs to be offloaded. Um, was there ever any uh, little bit of a sense of guilt that uh, that of guilt? There's a 
terrible inadvertent <laughs> pun, uh, totally unintentional, <laughs> that uh, that anyone you know, was taking advantage of anyone else's misfortune. Not at all, on the contrary. So we definitely had the, t- the macroeconomic timing in our favor, but the reality is we got going and we built momentum before the recession really hit and got bad. So we were already on an upward trajectory. Our, our brand was already getting out there. We were, you know, we had, we started with almost 15,000 members. Then a couple months later, we were on The View. Our membership tripled. You know, shortly thereafter, we had 100,000 members. That membership just kept growing, mostly through referral. We weren't doing any advertising. We, we didn't really do any SEO or SEM in, in our early years. It was, that was part of the cachet, was that you had to be invited. And then what was fortunate was that as the recession got bad, so many brands that I had approached initially and their responses might have been either no, not interested, or um, this sounds interesting, come back to me in six months. Then when I started going back to them and little did I know, maybe some of the top department stores had just returned all kinds of inventory to them and they were stuck with it and they had to liquidate it. You know, all of that certainly played in, in our favor, but I do not think that we took advantage of brands. If anything, I can count on two hands, probably about 10 brands that I, I do believe would not be here today if we hadn't come in and said, I'll write you a hundred thousand dollar check. I'll write you $50,000 check. I'll write you $250,000 check right now to get, you know, a huge assortment of inventory. Like, I remember having some meetings in the fall of 2008 where the lights were literally off in the showrooms of the um, garment district. And I don't think it was a coincidence. I think literally they hadn't paid their electric bills. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. So, I mean, guilt was this juggernaut, and uh, and yet, you know, you decided to to take another leap and to walk away and uh, and to become... CEO of Glam Squad. Tell us about that decision-making process. Was it the same group of, of advisors again? And how did you, <laughs> did you did you look at the downside risks again in the same way? Or was it a totally new, uh, novel uh, approach to, to trying something new? So I was in a different life stage when I made the decision to move to Glam Squad. So the things I thought about were different. Um, but I did go back to the same people. My family had to make sure they were comfortable with the idea and the risk. Um, the company, so a little bit differently from the Guild story, Glam Squad had already launched before I moved uh, over to the company. So I initially got involved about two months after the company had launched as an advisor because two of the Glam Squad co-founders went to college with me and we were at a Harvard undergrad tech event in early 2014 and I ran into these guys and you know was surprised to see them I didn't know they were in the tech space and they said we just started an awesome beauty services tech company it was an app Um, they told me about it we caught up a couple days later and I really I just fell in love on the spot with the idea 
I downloaded the app. I started becoming a client. I had every single day I had feedback for them. I had ideas for them. Um, I later became an investor and the, the, the board of Glam Squad came to me in May and they said, you know, we really want you to do this full time. We know you're trying to think about your next chapter. I was pretty open with them and saying that I loved guilt so much and that experience, but it had been seven years and um, I wanted to do something different and they could tell I was really passionate about startups and the early stage and you know they laughed they could see like the sparkle in my eyes of just that there, there's nothing like that feeling when you're in a startup and you have an idea on a Monday and you can execute it on a Wednesday and I don't understand why and how it's possible uh, because when you have a huge company with lots of resources lots of people you might even have lots of money marketing budgets etc to spend if you have an idea on a Monday sometimes it doesn't actually get executed for six months and that's because there's all kinds of reasons politics prioritization etc etc and when you're scrappy and in a little tiny resource constrained team you know why is it that you can just get things done and I love that that's so much fun um so you can you know I I don't look back it was a great decision I've been having a blast um and uh, and the business is doing really well. So we're at a really exciting inflection point at Glam Squad. Um, yeah. Is there is there a, you know, Alexis was a, was was your or remains your best friend? But again, this, these are these are friends of yours, acquaintances, friends of yours that you're that you're joining at, at Glam Squad. Is that important? Do you have a personal connection to the people who you're working with and founding, or is it just fortuitous? So I I have a history with some of the employees at Glam Squad. Um, they're kind of, each one has, I have a different uh, professional or, you know, relationship with. So, so two of the co-founders I knew from college. Um, one of our employees, our VP of marketing, she and I worked together for five years at, at Gilt. Um, and we, you know, we remained quite close. Um, and then some of our employees came, you know, came through word of mouth. So, um, you know, I mean, one is a funny story. So Alexis Maybank's sister's best friend um, is our is our director of um, business development and finance. And I mean, there are a lot. It's a small world. And I think when you're in a startup and you're trying to convince the best of the best and trying to put together an A team, and you don't have you don't have big comp packages to offer. You have whatever it is that you can offer from a salary perspective and then um, I'm a big believer we give stock options to, to all our employees um, I think it's important that everyone feels like an owner you know if that's all you have to, to offer um, then you have to think about the less tangible things so company culture um, opportunities for growth for career advancement for learning challenges and a lot of our team is with us because they, they believe in the vision of Glam Squad, which is to be our client's beauty obsession. They believe in our mission, which is to create this habit-forming beauty experience um, and making the process of getting ready a whole lot easier and creating this experience that our clients want to have again and again and again and again. I think I, uh, I, think I saw a video of you where you were on, online, you know, 
big on the on the pre-interview research here, uh, where you talked about how when you were raising money in 2007, I think you said that some of the VCs didn't really get it, and they said things like, "Well, I'll have to ask my wife," and and uh, and that to me, um, you know, obviously speaks to potentially a lack of, of gender diversity in, in uh, on VCs. I, I think you've raised, you've, you've been involved in a fundraise so far with Glam Squad. Has any of that changed? Do you feel like um, there's more? Diversity uh, in the when you're out there, you know, pitching your firm at this point. I think it is not a coincidence that our Series A investor uh, is a woman. There you go. Okay. Uh, so Marissa Campisi, she is um, our partner from SoftBank. She is on our board, and you know, we we had a great Series A fundraise in the fall. We talked to. Um, a number of different potential investors, and she it, it was almost like we didn't even have to finish the whole pitch with Marissa. She just really understood it instinctively. Um, she was just as passionate about our vision and our mission as, as we were, and I, I think the fact that she is a woman, and she's a professional, and she's busy, and she understands the mindset of our target clientele just really helped the process, and I think for for a lot of investors that we've spoken to um, since since the company's inception, they either really get it because it is so obvious if you if you do understand, um, or or it's something that maybe that a person just can't fathom and and can't realize that it it could actually scale. And the beauty industry is huge. It's it's um, you know hundred billion dollar industry in this country. There are over hundred. There are over 1.2 million hairstylists in the U.S. Um, this is a huge industry, and if you look at the success of companies like Drybar, which are doing great, um, and and I, I do have a lot of respect for Drybar. I think they've transformed consumer behavior. Um, it makes sense that now that there's this on-demand economy, and you have companies like Uber paving the way and making individuals rely on their phones for almost anything whether it be uh, transportation or food or um, home cleaning and now beauty and beauty is super personal it's really exciting if you have a great experience with glam squad you are going to tell your friends because you not only look fantastic but you feel so self-confident and and that's um, that's really powerful it's not a surprise that about 50 percent of our clients come to us through word of mouth. And you called starting Glam Squad, quote-unquote, hand-to-hand combat. Can you <laughs> give us some examples of that, uh, of that hand-to-hand combat? And I'm assuming it's a metaphor. It, it's definitely a metaphor. I think probably any entrepreneur listening to part of this podcast kind of knows what I mean. I mean, when you are in a startup, you walk into your office or you open your eyes that morning and grab your phone and you are expecting the unexpected. If you have a day with no surprises, where everything is exactly as you expected or planned, you're, I feel like most entrepreneurs are almost like worried. Like, you know, does, does, is my email working? Is my phone working? Um, you know, there are always surprises. So if you're, um, you know, big e-commerce companies, there can be tech glitches. Um, you know, I think in our company, uh, we're still early stage, but we're growing very aggressively. Um, every week we have our best week ever, seems to, to be the case, which is so exciting. And 
the success of our business is reliant on our amazing clients who we love and who are very loyal and use us some of them use us multiple times a week which is incredible to see that kind of engagement we have a really high mps um it's at it's about 79 um right now and it's even been up to 80 82 which is fantastic and we have we never sacrifice quality so we're a relatively affordable price point 50 dollars for a blowout but we have incredible quality um, and that comes from the decision that we made to have a creative director. His name is Giovanni Baccaro. He came from Frederick Fakai, and he is a real stickler for making sure that we vet and train the best of the best. And that is, I think, part of our secret sauce. You, you, earlier you said that, uh, that you had that feeling of being a superhero. You said this, uh, this well of energy that, uh, that I guess couldn't... Uh, could be tapped out. Do you still still feel like that today? Is it is it the same kind of feeling where you're just you're on all day and, and can't and can't shut it down? Well, I'm a little bit older, so I I think um, you know maybe I don't feel as uh, naive and invincible as I did when we were first starting Guilt. But in a way, um, Glam Squad. I don't. I don't want to simplify things, but in a way, I almost feel like it's it's easier. It's not hard to convince clients to download our app and try our services. When I tell people what Glam Squad is, I say, you know, it's beauty services. We go to you. We'll go to your office, your hotel, your home. Within 45 minutes to an hour, we'll completely transform you with really highly highly trained, high quality beauty professionals at a relatively affordable price that's not a hard sell for any client they're like oh my goodness this sounds incredible and the fact that they can come to me is fantastic and then on the flip side when we think about our supply it's not hard to convince uh, our beauty professionals to think about working with us so in that challenge um you know, get, getting supply and demand in sync, that, that is the challenge, but getting supply, getting demand is in many cases, it's a no brainer. So I don't, I don't want to say that Glam Squad's easy because it's not, it's hard, but in some ways, um, I, I think that this business is different and I've learned a lot over the years. So not only through my experiences at Guilt, but I've been an advisor or a, men a mentor to so many startups Many of them uh, female-founded, not all. Um, and I think even just watching some of the pain points of other startups, I've learned a lot, and I'm certainly applying a lot of those learnings to our day-to-day -day business at Glam Squad. And, and so what, what are some of those pain points? If you could wave your magic wand and get rid of something right now, what would it be, within reason? So one thing that's challenging for me and I think I've gotten better at this with time is that I, l I love ideas and in general it's just hard for me to say no and what we have done at Glam Squad is really focus on our core business and our core business is hair makeup and nails and we're in three markets New York LA Miami and as a team we are a really creative innovative smart team that is constantly trying to think about new ideas, new verticals, which cities to expand to next. And we have had to be really disciplined to say to ourselves, no, we're not going to do that this quarter. We're not going to think about it 
at this moment, let's revisit that idea, that topic, that potential launch at X date. And that's really hard, I think, for entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs typically want to do everything. They're glass half full. They are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, never see an idea they don't like. And to have that kind of discipline where you're saying to yourselves, looking you know, across the table and saying, okay, let's, let's put this idea on hold, that's really hard. Um, but I, I think it's been the right decision for us as we've grown our business. And, you know, we just, as I said, we just had our best week ever last week. And I think that's because we are focused on our three verticals, hair, makeup, and nails. And we're focused on our three markets, New York, LA, Miami. We talked a little bit before the show about the culture that you've created uh, at, at Glam Squad. What does it take for a member of the Glam fam to win a Glammy? Why don't you tell us what those things are? Yeah, so we have a really awesome creative culture. So we have about 250 beauty professionals. That number's growing every single day, every week. And these beauty professionals um, are really the secret sauce uh, to our business. And so we like to gather them together every few months. We have a gathering coming up this weekend where we get to interact with one another they all love to dress up and they do such a great job with their own hair and makeup because they're so incredibly talented and we just try to get them together so they can have fun because they deserve it but also to take a moment and really recognize how special they are how powerful their um their talents are and and the fact that our business is growing and scaling and we're seeing the kind of client engagement and loyalty is directly directly correlated to the quality of our Glam Fam. And so we give out these little awards called Glammies. We typically call up a lot of partners who we've done cool events or projects with and they'll donate really great beauty products or gift cards so that we can recognize our our most talented beauty professionals. And and the Glammies can be for different things. It can be for people who um, have taken the most appointments, who have had the best track or who have had the best track record of being punctual, who have the best style, who get the best feedback rating who are um, the best glambassadors of the company. Um, does it so end or does it, can, it, can, I mean, you, can you give us all the, all the glam puns? There's so, many, there's so many reasons that we want to celebrate members of the glam fam, and they take it really seriously. Like sometimes, um, you know, I usually kick it off, and then I'll pass the mic over to Giovanni Vaccaro, our creative director, and Kelly Bartlett, our head of makeup, and they're such a great tag team, yin and yang, and they kind of build the suspense before they announce a Glammy. And then the winner usually wants to come up and grab the mic and tell their story about whatever it might be when they were working behind the counter at Sephora and then Glam Squad came along and changed their life and literally tears come streaming down their face. Um, Tears of joy of like, I can't believe I found this company. I'm so happy to work uh, for Glam Squad, etc. And um, and that's really, really special. It gives all of us goosebumps. And, you know, it reminds us, like, that's one of the reasons we're in this business. And Glam Squad is now in New York, L.A., and Miami. Um, and you're saying, you know, you really want to focus on those markets. And, and uh, I'm not asking you to, you know, tip your hand too much. But, um, you know, a couple years out, give us a sense of where you expect Glam Squad to be. 
So I would love to see Glam Squad in two years in 15 markets. So I would love to see us in no particular order in Boston, DC, Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, Toronto, London. Um, I think I got all most of the markets we think about. Also Las Vegas and maybe even Nashville. Um, I think that beauty is a universal concept. If you think of any big city or even any teeny tiny town, there is always going to be a hair salon. There are always going to be women who want to have their hair done, whether it be for a special occasion um, or even as we find in, in our big cities like New York, LA, Miami, a lot of our clients just get their hair done or their nails done just because it's sort of beauty maintenance. It's not a special occasion uh, usage habit. And that's amazing. And that's how we're growing so quickly because we've tapped into professional women, busy moms, young and social women. Um, and all of these women have one thing in common. They are time starved and they don't want to sacrifice looking their best. So my goal in two years is to have hair that someone can style. <laughs> uh, in in two three years time, you know, do you have a you, what what percentage of your market would you like to see as, as male? That's a hard question. Um, I we want we want to think about men uh, for sure. We would probably need to create a totally separate brand, and even come up with a new name. Um, and and even think through how the services would be different. You could think about haircuts or beard trims, that sort of thing. Uh, but again, right now we are focused on women, not on men. But at some point in the future, and I remember this with guilt, we started with women and we ended up expanding into men's as a category much faster than we had originally anticipated. So the truth is when you're in a startup, you never know. You could move a whole lot faster or in some cases a little slower than than what you initially intend. And I know just from this conversation, obviously, um, you're, we're still in the early innings at Glam Squad, and you're probably not looking too far beyond it, but you've already had you know, one incredible experience. It sounds like you're in the middle of another. Um, can you see yourself, you know, is, this, is there going to be a third? You know, you know I'm not asking you to, <laughs> to tell us when, you're, when it's going to be, but it was going to be a third, a fourth, a fifth, or could you see yourself sticking with one that you love? I really have no idea what my professional future will hold. Um, for now, what I can say is that I am invigorated, I am learning, I'm having fun, I'm working with a team that inspires me and teaches me, um, that makes me want to jump out of bed every day and get to the office and get started and and make big things happen. And Hopefully I won't lose that feeling for a really long time. Um, and we really are committed to making Glam Squad something absolutely huge and disruptive. And uh, hopefully that day will come soon. Excellent. Um, I really want to thank you for, uh, for, for joining us today. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully we can, we can uh, in, in, a, in a year or two, we can check in again and we can compare one podcast to the other <laughs> and all the, all the prog prog progress we've uh, We've seen it uh, at Glam Squad. We can see that you're in Toronto, London, and more. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's kind of like a time capsule. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And thanks for being a great supporter of, of BFA as well. BFA is awesome. Thanks for having me.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.